preaching of God's Word is again in Exodus 34 and at verse 7, as we take up again the proclamation the Lord gives of Himself as He testifies, not as you and I might with our idealistic uh, best case in front of others, but as He's faithful and true, He gives an accurate and oh, what a glorious truth it is that's here conveyed for the sake of context. Here again, these words from verse 5 through 8. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. As we return to this, the Lord's proclaiming of His own goodness, we come now to verse 7, to this second portion, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. These words are, of course, familiar to us. Forgiveness is a theme throughout the Scriptures. Sin in its various ways described here, iniquity, transgression, and sin, are familiar as well. And yet in the proclamation of God's goodness, this portion stands out as of tremendous weight for our souls because it could be that God is faithful to His mercy, and yet if we know not the forgiveness of our sins, oh, how we have to give an answer for what follows that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and so on. So here is a special encouragement to us all because each of us, as descended from Adam, are those who are brought forth in sin. We're conceived in sin. We're brought forth in iniquity. And our lives display it from the earliest way that we're able to. Before we can talk, we prove our selfishness. So soon as we talk, we enhance the clarity of that selfishness. And though we grow and become refined and so on with our outward display, yet each of us will testify that sin is not far but near. Notice the words, though familiar, the word forgiveness here, forgiving, is a word that literally comes from lifting up or bearing away. What a picture that is of forgiveness, that the sins themselves are lifted from us and carried away the precious passage that He separates us from our sins as far as distant as the east to the west. So far hath He removed from us our iniquity, casts our sins behind Him. This idea is a precious one to the believer. It doesn't mean, as some have wrongly asserted, that God no longer knows our sins. It rather means that God no longer treats us according to what our sins deserve because He's remitted them. And as the fuller revelation of God's Word testifies, He's granted us that perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
These three words that appear have some nuance of difference, and yet they're all synonymous. So you have iniquity, transgression, and sin. It's a way in which the Lord is ensuring that there's not a type or way of sin that He does not forgive. Iniquity speaks more of that inward perversion. In fact, it comes from a word meaning just that, twisted, corrupted. And so instead of it being as it should, it's uh, grown, as it were, uh, twisted, perverted, and corrupted. Transgression is a word that comes from rebellion. And so there's command given, and there's a conscious casting off of that command and doing as one would desire. And likewise, the word sin has to do with a miss. Not an accidental miss, but a purposed miss. You can think of it perhaps to make it quite clear that one in authority says um, to do uh, one thing, throw the ball that direction, and throw it perhaps at the one wearing the glove. And instead, the one with the ball purposefully throws it in a different direction. It's missed on purpose. And so these are all speaking of a willful and a wicked perversion of soul and action, inward and outward, in all of its ways and manners. And here is the goodness of God toward that. He is one who forgives. Forgiving. It's not just that He forgave a select few, but He is one who is forgiving still. That it is His delight to display this His goodness in forgiving our sins. We read earlier in the book of Daniel, and oh, how this casts light upon these very things. When you think of Daniel's confession, you think of the way he stacks up various descriptions of his and his uh, brother's sins. And you'll notice at verse 5, he says, we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and thy judgments. There is a very clear picture of sin. It's easy for us to confess in so many syllables, but what you see in Daniel's perception, who himself was relatively and quite clearly a righteous man, yet he perceives sin for what it is. It's not just a number of tones that are spoken. It's not just a number of syllables that are uh, formed by our mouths or written on pages. This is abject wickedness. And so when we confess ourselves to be sinners, there ought never to be a sense of casualness. There ought never to be a sense of, well, this is what everyone is, so what's the big deal? But rather, as Daniel's getting at, this is inexcusably wicked. And so when you come back to what God is getting at, such a precious passage, it then leaps into the beauty that is here before us. That as wicked as our sins are, yet God is one who forgives them. So consider three things this evening regarding this forgiveness which God Himself proclaims that He is one who does it. He forgives. The glory of forgiveness. Secondly, the way of forgiveness. And thirdly, the blessedness of forgiveness. 
The word is so familiar, but we hope in the Lord's mercies to be confirmed in just how wondrous such a truth is that Jehovah, the eternal God, who is most holy, whose glory none can see and live, is a God, though whom we have sinned against, is a God that forgives. Well, firstly, then, the glory of forgiveness. Here the Lord particularly isolates this aspect of His goodness. He says, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Why is this particular feature highlighted? Well, it should be noted because of two things at least. Firstly, the nature of the thing being forgiven, what sin is. You know, when we've done something that ought not to have been done with somebody else, we love to couch it in terms of mistake. You know, I was mistaken, I was, should have done better, and all these things. We're hesitant to come out and say, it was wicked what I've done. We really hesitate with that because we have such self-love. We don't want to put our faces on the floor. We sin against our spouse and we say, you know what, you've known me and that's just sort of who I am and I'm sorry that I've hurt your feelings. We sin against a Christian. We fail in our duty. We fail in what we should have done or said or uh, uh, carried out and we sort of chalk it up to this is just what mankind is. And this actually weakens our understanding of the wonder of God's grace. When it is that we grow in our understanding of God's grace, we will be freer in our confessing of sins one to another. In fact, one reason that we hesitate to confess our sin as sin to one another is because we haven't actually dealt with the wonder of the grace of God in forgiving our sins. If we can lessen the infraction, you understand, we don't have to have so significant a remedy. And this is, of course, true spiritually. We go and we share the gospel with people sitting next to us in our neighborhoods, at places of work, family members, and when we challenge them with their sin, their instinct is to say, well, of course I've lied, but who hasn't? Of course I've done this, but who hasn't? And in doing so, they're saying it's common, and if it's common, it's not that big of a deal. And yet think of common things that we take for granted that are, in fact, an enormous deal from physical laws like gravity, it's common, and yet you remove gravity and the whole of our orientation changes. Oxygen is common, but so soon as it's taken away from us, we see how absolutely vital it is. Sin, though common, is not insignificant. And so when God uses these synonyms, these different words of sin, it's not just that he's saying, well, this is casually inclusive of all these things. He's layering the enormity of what it is he deals with. Sin is an immeasurable evil. And if only by the fact of its punishment we were able to judge it, we would see that sin is immeasurably wicked. The word iniquity holds forth that facet of sin in its moral perversion. Perversion today is often in sexual ways. And yet, that's not the end of perversion. The fact that we would love ourselves more than God 
is infinitely perverse. The fact that we would rather cater to our pleasures than give glory to God is immeasurably perverse. It's twisted. It's not grown the way it's supposed to grow. And so you think of how vines, untended, can grow all over the place and they become unuseful. But in a garden, by a master gardener, they can be trained. Well, in our own state of sin, our lusts grow all over and the wrong way only, twisted up, unuseful, knotted up, and never indeed seek out the light of the sun, but ever seeking out the dank and death of darkness. This is what sin is. It is reprehensible. Brethren, in our own times, we've seen these various images and heard reports of children targeted by terrorists. And we rightly say, that is perverse. It is a perversion. If one is at war, you don't target children. You target the soldiers who are firing at you. You target those. There's a corruption of sorts that would allow the moral compass of a man to target a child to murder that one. We speak nothing lightly when we say, yet that is but the display of a greater perversion that would lie in your own heart. Your own heart in loving self is the seedbed of the most grotesque displays of sin in this world. And God sees it so clearly that it is a wonder hell is not consuming us right now. Sin is a moral perversion. It's also a spiritual treason. This word transgression is a word that would hold forth rebellion. And, of course, it's so clear in the garden, isn't it? God makes man upright. Adam and Eve are supplied with a perfect setting of all that's needed, all that could be desired. Their work was not toilsome, though it was work. Their uh, relationship was not nothing but recreation, though it was refreshing. And the food and everything supplied to them was perfectly suited for their need. Everything was there. And above all, they enjoy the fellowship with God. And yet, they rebel. And so, they're told, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of their own accord, they give in to the temptation, take it, and go on. And yet, what was seen there in the garden is what is, as it were, the pattern of all sins. And so, the New Testament, we're warned about the lust of the flesh and of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And sin, when it's conceived, brings forth death. All of this is borrowing imagery from the Garden of Eden. And what happens when you and I sin is that we who were made for God, who were made exclusively for God, who were made to exist and ordered for God, we, as it were, we extract ourselves from that and give ourselves to another's agenda. And here's the astonishing thing. The agenda is our agenda. We choose ourselves over God, which is treasonable. We often do it with religious paintings and attempts to cover up what's taking place. 
Well, likewise, the nature of sin is shown here as a wicked aim. It's a miss. The word sin in its root is this notion. In fact, in the Greek as well, the word that's often translated as sin is a missing of the target, and yet a purposed one. And so, whereas it is we're told to give ourselves an attention to something good, we rather twist our attention to something evil. We call good evil, evil good. And we delight to do so. This is what we are in ourselves. And all of this is in the context of being done against the one who is most holy. What a beautiful reminder it is that in heaven there are those created beings, the angels, who never cease to worship God, crying out, holy, 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 and onward throughout all everlasting time. And what a blessedness it is to know that as believers, one day we shall be in heaven, never ceasing the praise to God. And yet, this God who is only holy and only good is the one against whom we sin. Brethren, this is where we start to see the glory of forgiveness. That it's not an accident. Sin is not an accident for which we're sorry. It's not as if, you know, we are driving down the highway and our tire blows and we lose control and hit a car and cause an accident and we rush out of the car and say, I'm so sorry. I would rather that not have happened. It wasn't my intention. That's not sin. Sin is the willful, purposed rebellion and catering to our moral perversion that we would aim at that which is contrary to what God calls us. And what needs to come face to face in this is yourself. This is what your sins are. They are consciously, deliberately perverting the way things are and should be. And all for your own perceived pleasure. While God, who is only worthy of praise, is rejected. That such a thing should ever be forgiven is astonishing. You imagine whatever else is going on between Israel and the Gaza Strip, some of those who had their children murdered, if the very terrorists who were celebrating those things were brought to the parents of those children and said, would you forgive me? Can you imagine the difficulty of even entertaining a notion? And yet again, though tremendously wicked, what is disclosed there is but the outworking of our sins and sinful nature against God. So that there's even a word, forgiveness, is a wonder. But this is all the more glorious when we consider the demand of justice. The glory of forgiveness is not just in considering the nature of sin, but in remembering that God is pure and perfect and cannot tolerate sin. He's not like you and I, where at the end of the day we have to say, well, I know what it's like to sin. You know, someone spouts off with their mouth and we have to say, well, I've done the same thing. Someone underserves where they, what they should have done and we have to say, I've done the same. And it tempers us toward them. It causes us to say, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be faced with temptation and to be allured by it and to take, as it were, the bait. I know what that's like. 
And so it causes us, as it were, to go forth with a temperament of understanding. But God is only pure. God is only holy. There is no impurity, no imperfection within Him. We would do well, as we sing on occasion, to take to heart the psalmist in Psalm 5 when strong words are spoken against sinners. There in Psalm 5, verses 4 and 5, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. He hates all workers of iniquity. Psalm 11 has a similar vein uh, that's shared with this in Psalm 11 and verses 4 and following. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous, but the wicked and him that loveth violence his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire and brimstone, and horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. This is their inheritance. Here's a testimony of hell. Notice in Romans in chapter 2, there at verses 5 and 6, to sober us to these searching truths. Romans 2, 5 and 6, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness of judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. Treasuring up, storing up wrath against the day of wrath. It's outpouring. When we remember that God is not this grandfatherly figure that most paint Him and portray Him to be that just sort of says, you know, I knew what it was to be young and we're all a big family, so what's the big deal? But He is a righteous judge. And His hatred is serious towards sinners. Again, that there is such a word as forgiveness should astonish us. But this is what sets up for the glory of forgiveness because sin is against God And though we can begin to get a sense of its nature and its deserving in light of what it is and what God is as holy and just and good, the glory is then what leads us to consider the way of forgiveness. How is it that God forgives? It simply says in our text that He is the one who is forgiving of these things, of this sin. The rest of the Scripture opens before us how He does it. He doesn't do it by merely saying, oh, it's okay. But rather, He does so by dealing with the infraction. And our time need not be long with this, though it is well worth our attention. The way that He deals with it is by a just dealing with sin. This is something that needs to hit us quite clearly. It is gracious toward us, but it is justly dealt with. So all of this that we thought about with sin, why have we spent this time where we're talking about God's goodness? Because the way in which He forgives sin magnifies His goodness. 
It's not just some verbal, airy thing that He then says, you know what, you're forgiven. Because justice demands that your sins, your perversion, your wickedness is truly dealt with. And that His justice is truly satisfied. At the forgiveness of sins, it's not that He just takes a big breath in and then calms Himself and says, I agree to look past your sin. And we'll just carry on now. Instead, it is dealt with in justice. So think for a moment how this is mentioned in the book of Romans. It's particularly highlighting chapter 3, verse 25, his dealing with the sins that are past before the death of Christ, and yet it gives us the way in which he deals with all sins. So he's dealing, Paul's dealing with you know, how it is that God has dealt with the sins of those who sinned before the coming of Christ through Jesus Christ. So notice verse 5, Christ Jesus, Romans 3.25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. It's a sacrifice that satisfies God's wrath through faith in His blood. And that word blood is not just like you and I have on occasion uh, cut ourselves, but it is an emblem of His death. So the meaning is a propitiation through faith in His death to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just. Don't miss that point. That in the cross, God is displaying His righteousness. It's not just that at justification He imputes the righteousness of Christ, but on the cross... God is displaying His just dealing with the sins of His people. And so, Christ's suffering is the satisfying of divine vengeance. And so, when God has said, listen, the soul that sins, it shall die. Wrath shall be upon it. The wonder of the cross is that Christ takes the place that we deserve. And justice is answered with Him. And so, Zechariah, of course, uses the image of the sword. The Lord says, Awake, O sword, and uh, uh, come against the one, the man who is my fellow. And so the sword of vengeance comes crashing down upon the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is important for us to see that as this pronouncing of goodness to us and forgiving sins is all the more wondrous in our sight because the way that we're able to receive this gracious sentence, pardoned, forgiven, accepted, given peace, and so on, is because there was a substitute who took our place to bear the wrath, the just wrath of God. You see, of course, the Scriptures anticipate this from its beginning when it is that there are sacrifices in place, but even at the very beginning, there's Adam and Eve and they've Oh, they're aware in their sin of their shame. And so they cover themselves with these handmade uh, uh, um, uh, leaves that cover them. And yet, when God would speak peace to them, He covers them with the skins of animals. Something had to die to cover their shame. And this sacrifice would then continue throughout. So you see it in Noah. What does he do? He offers up sacrifices when he comes off of the ark. And then, of course, with Abraham and Moses, this clarifying of 
the sacrifices, you have the day of Passover, you have the day of atonement, and these pinnacle sorts of sacrifices pointing out that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. How does that relate to our our text? Without the shedding of blood, without death, there is no forgiving of sin, iniquity, and transgression. That's the point. Because there's no way of pardon without justice being answered in God's demand of what He is. There must be justice satisfied. And yet, in order to forgive us, that justice can't be set aside. So what does He do? He sends forth His only begotten Son incarnate. And through Christ, He indeed suffers on our behalf that we may be forgiven. That's why Paul goes on to testify not only that He might be just, that He, God, might be righteous, but also the justifier, the declarer of righteousness of Him which believeth in Jesus. So when we think about the forgiveness of sins, we should think and make ourselves balance this well. The forgiveness of sins is both an act of justice and an act of grace. Not at one and the same time and one and the same way. But the way in which God is able to bring forgiveness to us is by executing justice upon a substitute. One who did not deserve such punishment. One who was willing to receive such punishment. And one who could bear up such punishment and satisfy it fully so that those precious words, which are but one in the Greek, it is finished, speaks to us of justice being satisfied. There's justice. And yet it's grace because it's a substitute which then by the execution of justice upon Christ, now God is able to proclaim forgiveness to us and give peace to us. So for instance, as Paul works through this argument, notice in verse 24 of chapter 4, Romans 4, verse 24, he says, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The way of forgiveness is not by the mere verbal declaration. It's rather by the incarnation of the Word who then bears the sentence of judgment against Himself that ought to have fallen upon us as He was delivered for us, that then the proclamation of pardon might go forth. What a blessed thing it is as Christ would go into the nations when first, of course, in His incarnate ministry, He went into Israel and to the surrounding areas. And think of this, He would proclaim good news. We need to make ourselves see the only way He's able to proclaim good news is because He's going to take the bad news upon Himself. He's going around saying, here's good news for you. Here's the Gospel of the Kingdom of God. Here is peace to you. Here is pardon to you. And the whole time He's announcing that, declaring that, He is already under the sentence of condemnation to be fully displayed on the cross when it is that the justice of God should be settled and answered by His blood and death. Well, this then leads us thirdly to the blessedness of forgiveness. 
You go from the difficulties of considering the nature of sin, something that we can merely glance at, it would seem, lest we be consumed with the horror of what sin is in ourselves. We think of the provision, the way of forgiveness through Jesus Christ in His work upon the cross, His righteousness, His spotless self being sacrificed and then received by faith. Well, what does that procure for us? Well, as God says, forgiving sin, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, it brings to us the lifting up of the curse. Jesus Christ was cursed for us. He was made to be a curse, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, though we knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. There's the blessedness of it. It comes to us and brings us the fullness of enjoyment with God. Not fully yet in this life, and yet truly so. Well, the blessedness consists firstly in that justice is answered on our behalf. It's not that the cross satisfies justice abstractly. It's that the cross satisfies justice personally. That as none of us can look at the cross and say, well, his sins and that one sins and so on, but rather so soon as we embrace Christ by faith, because the gospel is not you need to know that Christ died for your sins. That's assurance that comes to us after we've embraced Christ. The Gospel is embrace Jesus Christ and you will be accepted, forgiven, pardoned. Well, when it is that we receive Jesus Christ, it's then that we're able to perceive that at the moment that Christ was suffering, He was bearing my sins. He loved me, said Paul, Galatians 2, and gave Himself for me. That wasn't Paul speaking before he came to Christ. That was after he came to Christ and realized all that this entails. And the blessedness of forgiveness is knowing that Christ settled the account of my sins. He paid it in full. He's able to say every penny of justice is paid for. Remember the warning that is given to the one who would not seek out his debt being remitted in this life. He said, you'll be cast into hell until you pay the uttermost farthing. What is the cross? It is Christ's paying the uttermost farthing on behalf of those God had chosen who would believe upon Him by His grace. Justice is answered, which means, believer, if believing, you have Christ who has lifted up, carried away, and cast off the wrath of God. Now notice that doesn't mean there's not conviction of sin. This is where shoddy thinking in our own era has caused problems. Conviction of sin in the life of the believer is not the same as fearing the wrath of God. Now it's true a believer may come into such desperate straits that they begin to fear the wrath of God. But the conviction of sin which humbles and abases the believer who is assured of his salvation is not a conviction that thinks I'm going to suffer the wrath of God unless I confess my sins. With the greatest of assurance, the believer is able to know that his guilt is removed, that he has no fear of needing to deal with the justice of God for all eternity. 
but his soul is overwhelmed with grief that he, as one who is an object of grace, should persist in all of the things we've just spoken of regarding sin. How can it be, O God, that I who have been shown mercy and shown grace and have been shown the Lord and am forgiven, that I should dare continue in the path of sin at all? There is real conviction in that. And yet the blessedness of confessing our sins with the full assurance that as we do, the Lord forgives and applies to us the riches of Christ, able to say, justice is answered, my wrath is satisfied. We read in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, therefore being justified, what do we have? We have peace with God. It's not war anymore. We're not at enmity with God. There are fatherly chastenings. There are afflictions. There are trials. There are works that God brings to pass in our lives to humble us, to convince and convict us. But none of that comes from a disturbed state, but rather out of love from a God with whom we have peace. And you'll notice in Ephesians chapter 2 that we could look other places that one of the great blessings that come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and this forgiveness of sins is that the forgiveness removing that enmity and cleansing us of our sin and guilt enlivens and or rather enables us to enjoy fellowship with God. Notice Ephesians 2 and verse 18. The Lord Jesus Christ who brings us peace. Through Him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Notice the trinity of persons there. Through Him, that's Jesus Christ. By one Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit unto the Father. And so the persons presented to us, Christ's mediation by the powerful working of the Spirit that we may enjoy the Father's presence and fellowship. And see the same in Hebrews in chapter 10 when it is that Christ's work is presented to us. Again, Hebrews chapter 10 and at verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, His flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true heart, a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What's being said is, knowing Christ, trusting Christ, knowing what He's done, we may follow through with Christ to enjoy now the presence and fellowship of God in peace. Forgiveness is not an end in itself. Forgiveness is indeed a great blessing. But the way in which God deals with and brings us to be forgiven is as it were a means that He may enjoy our presence with Him and we may enjoy His presence with us. Because by the blood of Christ, that which was the obstacle is removed. Well, brethren, the whole Bible is full of the message of forgiveness. 
Let's see as we close what a comfort and blessing this truth is. Each of us, of course, know that if we were to be awakened at three in the morning, we would understand, of course, that this is a blessing. But to consider that this is being proclaimed by God Himself. It's not merely that it's the apostles or the prophets. It's not a preacher. It's not even a common uh, person. It's God who is announcing that He forgives sin, iniquity, and transgression. How important is it that God Himself does so? Well, isn't it striking that when you become aware of your sins, how difficult it is to deal well with them? I'll just ignore that. It's not as bad. Everyone sins. Well, that doesn't do anything. That's perhaps a common way to try and deal with it today. I'm a forgiven person. I'm not going to worry about it. And yet, really, we're just sweeping it under the rug and our souls are not being exercised in the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps we see them so clearly we become overwhelmed by it and say, what hope do I have? Satan leaps upon us and says, there's no hope for you. And we descend into the abyss of confusion. But there's actually a biblical way to deal with sin. It's neither to ignore it or treat it casually, nor is it to look at it as something that cannot be dealt with. Now, it's true. We ought to look at it as something we cannot deal with on our own but rather to see it as dealt with by the blood of Christ, which then causes us to go to Christ with delight and earnestness. Daniel knew that there was forgiveness of sins. He knew the Messiah. He knew the way. He knew all of that. And yet he wasn't in any way cutting short his confession. Why was he doing that? Because he had the assurance that God is a God who forgives. When we are assured that God forgives, we won't lessen our confession, we'll increase it. When we're assured that God will deal with the enormity of our sin, we don't say, well, sin's a little thing, you know, everyone does, not a big deal, I know about forgiveness. No, we will go up in our admissions and confessions and owning these things. When we are those who truly understand the grace of God, it will not diminish our confessing of sins. It will increase it. Because the thing that actually keeps us little in our confession is our little wonder at and assurance of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. If you are little in your sin or your confessing of sins, it is inseparably connected to. You actually, whatever your orthodoxy, whatever your confession of faith, you're actually little in your knowledge of the way of forgiveness. When you understand these things, it will cause this readiness to confess and not hesitate to own all of the details and all of their circumstances. This is a great blessing that actually allows us to unburden our souls. It allows us the freedom to own the horrors of our iniquity. Not with presumption, but with the certainty and assurance that through Jesus Christ, the proclamation that is here given to Moses is a real truth. God is the one who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. Here is a great encouragement then to be full in our searching out of sins and to be full in our confessing of that. Isn't it striking that when we go to prayer in secret, 
it's often all of a sudden all the other things come to our mind that we need to do. We actually need to force ourselves to stay on our knees and to say, there's work to be done in my soul that I think I can get past a pass by five minutes of prayer, ten minutes of prayer. When I have years of sin, when I have the morning of sin, when I have the sins of my generation, something's wrong with me that I am not compelled to stay here longer on my knees and confess the sins of myself, the sins of my family, the sins of my church, the sins of the a church throughout the world. What will help us do that? Not only a clear understanding of the nature of sin, but a clear persuasion that God is the one who forgives and how He forgives. Well, brethren, if you've been forgiven, which indeed you have if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, then see indeed your only reason for being forgiven because the Lord is good because He has freely given Himself to be the one who would proclaim, as well as through the person of His Son, procure your pardon. What a blessed God we have who truly should elicit from us ceaseless praise, both now and forever. Would you stand with me for prayer?